Hello, and welcome to ClapperCast, the global film podcast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Diego Andalus, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. Hannah Ringwald. Hi. And Alistair Ryder. Hey. So on today's episode, we are discussing Netflix and Ron Howard's latest possible awards contender, Hillbilly Elegy, Francis Lee's Ammonite, and Alan Ball's Uncle Frank. So let's start with Hillbilly Elegy. Well, I thought your mama was gonna be all right. <laughs> be happy. I know I could have done better, but you, you got to decide you want to be somebody or not. Do you actually want to be dead, Mom? Or are you just too lazy to try? Jenny. Oh, I tried! Plenty! You've always got a reason. It's always someone else's fault. Some point, you're gonna have to take responsibility, or someone else what? is gonna have to step in. Who? Huh? Who? You? An urgent phone call pulls a Yale law student back to his Ohio hometown, where he reflects on three generations of family history and his own future. So, anyways, Carson, this seemed to be before its release one of Netflix's possible biggest awards contenders. So, what do you think about how the film turned out? So not to kick Ron Howard when he's down after Solo. I feel like he got a ton of hate for Solo. And where I'm not a fan of that film, his name has been just dragged through the mud pretty unfairly, I would say. Hillbilly Elegy, not good, though. Netflix has been, I think, with his major releases, pretty bad recently, actually. Um, I think Netflix tends to be one of the better distributors. Um, and they have a couple good things going right now, especially their partnership with Array Now, I think, is just brilliant. And I'm on good authority that it's gonna, their luck is going to turn around very soon with some of their releases. Hillbilly Elegy is not the start of that, though. This is a really badly crafted film with zero sense of nuance or genuine emotion, not to be very harsh on the film. Um, I really did not like this film. Just on a fundamental filmmaking like standard, I think when you look at an experienced director, you don't expect these results. It feels cluttered, it feels messy. Ultimately, where I think it has some worthy things it's trying to say, especially about the circular history um, of abuse and failure of parents uh, with love and teaching their kids the right way and teaching their kids love, um, I don't think this film finds a worthwhile way to say anything, really. Um, I don't think anything it actually ends up saying with these themes are worthwhile. This was quite disappointing. Um, I really hope this was going to be the start of Netflix's just great award season. Not quite. Uh, yeah, I also really didn't enjoy the movie. I found myself being like really bored through a lot of it. There's a lot of the movie that reminded me of a movie that came out in 2018 called Beautiful Boy. And that movie's frustrating too in its own right. But this is like Beautiful Boy to like, it's like Beautiful Boy at its worst is the entirety of this movie, <laughs> basically. It's so like manipulative and it's basically yelling the movie. Like the entire time I was watching, I was like, like lower your voice, stop yelling. You don't need to like, you really don't need to like manipulate everything that you're saying to like get me to be invested. Um, and I wasn't invested at all. They're like, any of it I just did not care and like you're saying with Ron Howard I do think that Ron Howard is a good director and I think that he gets a lot of like flack that's not really like you know deserved but with this everything that's been said about it I'm like he really did not add anything to this film and he kind of made 
a lot of like detriment to it because I feel like with something like this with a story that's still like kind of like bare bones and character driven you do need kind of the you know a director that's um behind the camera that can really bring a lot of personality to it like beyond that um I think of like Colin Bear Name and like those kind of movies like this this on paper it sounds like it would be like a movie that I would love because I kind of love character driven movies where it's like nothing's really happening it's just kind of like a lot of you know character moments but with this it's like I, I can't get into it uh, <laughs> but Amy Adams and Glenn Close are really really good uh everyone said that but yeah it just the movie feels fake overall and I it wasn't for me yeah, I think for me, the film is most enjoyable on like a sort of meta level where it exists only to try and get Amy Adams and Glenn Close awards and not as an actual drama in and of itself. If you're watching it just thinking that they're putting themselves through this incredibly mediocre drama, screaming, turning everything up to 11 just because they want to get awards, then it becomes really enjoyable. Um, on face value, though, no, it is an incredibly mediocre film. Um, I haven't read the book, but I am familiar sort of with the controversies around it. Um, Hillary Clinton famously said that the book and sort of the, the representation within it gave her an understanding of why she lost the election in 2016. And Ron Howard has approached this knowing that this is this potentially politically controversial book and has just decided to just step away from any controversies and, you know, understandably, but the end result is just something that's just so incredibly bland and just doesn't say anything. And yeah, it is just an absolute shrug of a movie. I don't think it's like the worst film of the year, but it's just an absolute shrug for me. And yeah, Netflix's award season hasn't really kicked into full swing yet from what I'm seeing. Yeah, I mean, again, like when I first saw it, I was actually like, okay, it's kind of what I expected. I feel that honestly, film Twitter maybe kind of like was already prepared to hate it and maybe is already going and hating it a little bit more than they should. I found it to be like Alistair, just mediocre. Like it wasn't outright bad, I'd say. Um, but again, as Carson knows, and if you, whoever has listened to this podcast before knows, one of the traits I value most in directors is ambition. And I'd say Ron Howard is pretty much devoid of ambition and just goes in there, does pretty much the bare minimum and gets out and that does no favors to this film. Um, also, I, I believe it was Vanessa Taylor who wrote the film and who adapted it from the novel. I would say that that was kind of tricky for her because she had to deal with both. Because um, again, I haven't read the book either, but I've heard that that was one of the more, more, more intriguing portions of the book, just when it talks about kind of like the mindset behind those people that ended up supporting Trump. And I've heard both things that like, it's very controversial, but again, that um, it does give kind of a, a thoughtful insight into the mindset of those people. And I found that again, Ron Howard, I don't know if it was Ron Howard or Vanessa Taylor who made the decision to strip that from the film. And I felt that that would have actually maybe made the film a bit more interesting because it may have gotten some haters, but Overall, I feel like it would have definitely given an intriguing angle to the whole narrative instead of just getting your cookie cutter by the book um, biopic, or I guess, yeah, it's, it's technically, well, I just say it's more of a melodramatic um, biopic, I guess, um, of Gabriel Basso's character. And again, I would have to say Glenn Close, Amy Adams, great as always. You can tell they're just doing this simply for awards. And honestly, I feel that's the main problem of this film. I feel like in 2020, we've gotten so many films where it's like for better or for worse it's 
famous directors getting all the creative control they want and just really going out for the that ambition and just trying to turn it up to 11. And here Ron Howard takes it and just, it's clear he's just trying to make an, uh, it's just an awards film, nothing more. And you can tell that there's, it's really lacking a lot of ambition here. I like what's said before about Amy Adams specifically. I think she's magnificent in the film. Actually, I found myself being a bit disappointed by Glenn Close in the film. She's like perfectly fine. I didn't think she was like as big of a standout as Amy Adams, I guess. She's much more in a supporting role. Um, but I think one of the most interesting aspects of this is how this film is as an adaptation. I've also not read the book, so it's kind of hard to give a direct comparison. Um, but comparing this to something like Call Me By Your Name, um, which I know me and Hannah are very big fans of, that is a film that works so well. And it's such interest, so interesting look at that film as an adaptation, considering the book is basically all in this kid's head. And adapting that to screen, a medium where you have to show things visually, it's a very weird fit. And that film makes it work perfectly. And it's very captivating, very atmospheric. And you can really feel empathy for the characters. I think that's one of the main areas where Hillbilly Elegy really fails, is the fact that it's simply not interesting. I could see reading these characters' thoughts and their opinions and their feelings and their emotions as they go through them and seeing what's going on inside their heads and really becoming captivated by it. How the film decides to show this, though, is just so boring, like you've mentioned, and so uninteresting. Um, it doesn't capture that nuance and the power of what is happening inside these characters' heads um, and just how it shows the situation I think really devalues it in a way so I think I would be really interested to read the book and see these direct comparisons but I think ultimately where you see this film fail I think will be ultimately how it is an adaptation yeah I liked what I forgot who was saying it but there's no real no real kind of like ambition behind like what Ron Howard is doing and I with like you said calling her name it's so like with with story there's a lot of movies that like come to my mind it's like short term 12 like so many movies where it's like it's just people living and like there's so much personality like behind the camera that really like immerses you in the story and kind of like even if there's not a lot going on on screen you still have like you know stuff to take in especially with calling by your name there's so much um atmosphere like you're saying and ron howard just doesn't have any of that so it really like makes me scratch my head when i'm like why did they choose ron howard when like <laughs> wanting uh looking for a director it's just it feels like everything just kind of like feels like not not clashing well in the movie I feel like everything's kind of against each other um and I forgot who said it again but with Glenn Close I'm I was also like kind of disappointed by her I'm also just not really like a huge Glenn Close fan but like I feel like they it was so like weird it was just I I, I don't understand like the thought process behind anything in this film <laughs> even with like the performances I'm like yeah they're like they're obviously trying to go for like Oscar bait stuff but like it's just everything feels like such a disconnect and it's really it's really frustrating watching the movie yeah i mean again von howard as we keep saying the most unambitious director you could possibly have um to me it honestly just seems like he chose this project because it has an element of prestige about it and you know he's obviously a former oscar winner and i don't like to talk too much you know about oscar prospect when reviewing a film but i mean this is just awards bait the movie this entire project, you know, from the casting of two actresses who everybody wants to finally get their Oscars to this former winner who has just been chasing Oscar glory again, you know, since winning Best Director nearly 20 years ago. It just seems like the most cynical proposition. And, you know, there is potential to turn this controversial book into something substantial that actually addresses this, you know, the themes within 
you know, very well. But it's not going to be via a Ron Howard film. And uh, yeah, Hillbilly Melody, that's my, you know, that's my review. We can't have the director oh. shitting on the podcast on Twitter. <laughs> Please keep it to a minimum. <laughs> no, but yeah, I really felt that, um, again, I agree with pretty much all you guys have said. I'm a little bit taken aback that you guys think that Amy Adams performed better than Glenn Close. I mean, I honestly found them both equal, but I know the general consensus online was that Amy Adams was actually the one who was lacking. Um, but overall, again, I just, again, I'm just really, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by Ron Howard's um, direction here because it's Ron Howard. But again, I feel that there are certain moments actually where maybe Amy Adams and Glenn Close aren't just like all out screaming. Like there's a couple subtle moments here and there that I'd say actually are able to bring out some emotion, kind of round out the narrative. Well, if you guys didn't realize by now, I did give this film like a, a slightly positive review. Um, and it was really because of subtle moments like in, in the hotel room, I'm sure like towards the end, you guys will remember, like where they aren't just like all out screaming and crying at each other, but it's, it's much more subtle. And I feel that when the film handle or when the film tries to go for that subtlety, instead of those awards bait scenes, I feel that it actually works quite well. And I'm just a little bit disappointed that they ended up um, focusing the film more on the, the screaming scenes and kind of the awards bait aspects of it rather than um, the subtle parts. Because again, if you were to make this book into a more, un, uh, a more subtle movie, and li like Hannah was saying, like if you maybe take like an indie director, maybe like from Short Term 12, or, or even Call Me By Your Name again, just directors who are familiar with how to deal with like human relationships and more emotions and not just like putting them all out there, um, just specifically targeted towards awards voters. I feel like this could have been a much better movie than what it ended up being. So then one last thing about this film, which I know has been pretty much in every review and every conversation is, what do you guys think about its awards potential? Because again, this is pretty much the sole reason this film was made. So I'm curious to hear what you guys think about what it might actually do at the Golden Globes, at the Academy Awards, or even just the Precursor Awards. I think this is just the ultimate Golden Globe Award nomination movie, and then it just completely flames out after then. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't see Amy Adams getting nominated because Best Actress is just so stacked this year as it is every year. I could see Glenn Close slipping in, but once again, it will be another defeat there. Yeah, I agree. I really think this is Glenn Close or bust. I know there's some people holding out, I don't know if I would say hope, but some people are holding out a theory that it's going to possibly get adapted screenplay. You look at the Academy, and I mean, there's been very controversial nominations and wins in the past, but normally it's at least decently reviewed films. Uh, this film, it's at like, what, 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not really hearing any audiences really buzz so far, and granted, it's not came out to general release when we're recording this. Um, so maybe this will have a big audience, but there's no like passion, it seems like, behind this film or its release. Um, you know, Golden Globes, I have no clue. They just want to get drunk at home at this point. So they'll probably want to be on Skype with Amy Adams. Um, Oscars, though, I, I agree. It's just pretty much Glenn Close. Its best chances are probably at the Golden Globes uh, because the Golden Globes are just ridiculous. So is the Academy, but Golden Globes are on a whole nother level of what the fuck um but <laughs> um 
with the with the Oscars I said this right when the trailer came out and like film Twitter was like going nuts for like the trailer they're like oh my god Ron Howard's back Glenn Close did it whatever I made a tweet and I said this looks like the film that is gonna like everyone's gonna be like oh yeah it's gonna get all the awards and then come Oscars nothing like I genuinely really do feel like Glenn Close is not gonna get a nomination because I feel like every like acting category is pretty stacked this year and with a movie that isn't as good as we all thought it would be I feel like Glenn Close is definitely gonna like kind of like fizzle out um so yeah I don't know I I wouldn't be mad if it got nothing that's what I'll say <laughs> my apologies actually I do think it's gonna get makeup and hairstyling and I actually have it oh, pen- yeah. penned in right now to win that but they don't care they nominated they gave a win to Suicide, Suicide Squad so they really don't care yeah, I also think Netflix realized this isn't as much of a contender as possible because, I mean, they snapped up the rights to pieces of a woman out of Venice and that is now pretty much what their focus for best actress and best supporting actress is going to be. So, yeah, I really do think that Golden Globes is where this film is going to shine, as you guys have all said. Um, I do feel that maybe Glenn Close will slip in. I don't think maybe she would go all the way to win, although... Honestly, depending how that levels out, depending how Netflix pushes it, as kind of Alistair was kind of touching at, I think she could possibly pull up maybe a win, maybe an upset. Um, who knows? Especially with uh, the whole Olivia Coleman thing. Was that? I believe that was two years ago. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening because I, I saw a stat on Twitter where apparently quite a few of Glenn Close's nominations have been from rock, like pretty much rotten films, like critically reviled films. So it's clear that she is not an actress that is held down by the overall quality of the film and that she's normally able to transcend that. So that would be my case for Glenn Close, although I'm not quite sure about that. Maybe a Globes win and an Academy nomination in that fifth slot or fourth slot. But I'd say, again, makeup and hairstyling, that's a definite um, nomination, probable win. But yeah, honestly, I feel that as Alistair was saying, Netflix picked this up. I think Netflix, this was not something that Netflix picked up. This was something that was always a Netflix production through and through. And then once they kind of saw the quality of this film and then the quality of these other films on the festival circuit, especially like in TIFF, they pretty much picked up a huge portion of the TIFF catalog. Um, So I think they did realize their mistake here and will probably just keep this for the Globes and then focus on the actual quality, quality films for the Academy Awards. What I find curious, though, is the release date they gave it. This is like their Thanksgiving movie, which I don't know why no studios right now are like pushing things for Thanksgiving audiences. Everyone seems to be going for Christmas. But you think that they would put like a major contender right now, like The Trial of the Chicago 7. I mean, even Mank or something out at this time. It feels very strange that they're giving this film the like prime slot where audiences are going to be home. Families are going to be together, not doing their normal Thanksgiving plans, hopefully at least, you know, we'll see. Um, it seems like this is the prime time to put something out there to get a ton of attention. And they're giving this film the prime time spot, which even just the content, even if it was a good film, I think is very questionable. So I think that's very strange coming from Netflix. Uh, I mean, we'll see though. I want to add one more thing. I feel like Glenn Close, uh, what happened with Taryn Edgerton last year, I think will happen with her this year. She'll get the Globe nomination, she'll win the Globe, but then she won't get nominated at the Oscars and won't win because she isn't nominated. But everyone will applaud. They won't cry like Taryn. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, just going back to what Carson said, um, that reminds me that when I watched this film with my family, they actually quite loved it. Like they really, they really loved it because... 
they had seen some that they didn't like for a while. And then this one really stood out in, in their minds. So actually, because I know you have mentioned before, like, we have to see what the audience reaction is. I do feel like maybe not saying that like the us critics are being harsh, but I feel that like this is kind of going to be one of those films that has a disconnect between critics and general audiences. Because, you know, audiences, they, all, they always just fall for the melodrama, um, regardless of how... Um, um, again, not, not, I've seen Carson making a face, not underestimating um, the, the audiences, the general audience's film knowledge, but I feel that they always like, um, they always love the melodrama regardless of like how contrived it is. And again, like my family really, like they really love this film, which I was kind of surprised by. Um, so I feel like this is kind of the perfect Thanksgiving movie because I feel like Trial of Chicago 7, I know um, Aaron Sorkin said it was a must to have it be before the election. Mank, I think they wanna they want to save it a little bit just to like not be like one of those forgotten contenders, kind of like what happened with the Irishman. But yeah, I feel that again, I know actually one of the films we're gonna talk about later is also kind of a Thanksgiving release um, in Uncle Frank. But I am surprised as you were saying that pretty much the only big Thanksgiving releases are Hillbilly Elegy, Uncle Frank, and is the Crudes 2 Thanksgiving? Is that meant to be yes. a Thanksgiving? Theatrically okay. though. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think um, many people will actually venture out into the theaters. And I'd say they're probably going to stick with Hillbilly Elegy. And I wouldn't be surprised seeing this in the Netflix top 10 or whatever for like pretty much all of Thanksgiving weekend. I think Run is releasing on Hulu around Thanksgiving too. Oh, no, that's actually that. this this weekend, I think. Or Sorry, we're, this is... Thanksgiving uh, this weekend? Am I just This um, upcoming week. Like this, this upcoming yeah. weekend, yeah. So around yeah. that time, yeah. Yeah, It'll yeah, be I another guess. small axe ed- edition, right? Oh yeah, is that Lovers? I think maybe Lovers Rock potentially. Oh. I don't know. I mean, that's an, that's a whole other thing, but uh, a conversation for another day, as Carson knows. But yeah, um, I think those are the the major Thanksgiving releases. So next, let's move on to Ammonite. Cornu Ammonus. Ammonite. Your skills are legendary. I was under the impression that fine London gentlemen were no longer interested in my relics. Fashion moved on. My wife hasn't been at all well of late. What a wonderful opportunity it would be for her to walk the shoreline with you, learn from you. I'm not looking for an apprentice. I would be able to pay a premium for a private audience. Your husband paid me to take you out with me. My husband, your husband, left you. I don't want to be alone. In 19th century England, acclaimed but overlooked fossil hunter Mary Anning and a young woman sent to convalescence by the sea develop an intense relationship, altering both of their lives forever. This film released actually in theaters on November 13th and is coming to VOD actually uh, December 4th, which is again, as we've said, the date of some pretty big films. So I want to start with Hannah. What do you think about this film? Because I know there's been much buzz about it. I wish I had more to say about this movie. It falls into the same category as like 
not even not the content at all like even though they are similar but like I feel the same way about this film that I felt about Portrait of a Lady on Fire like everyone loves it so much and is like raised about it and I'm like I watched it and I and I tried so hard because I'm like this seems like it's like right up my alley like something that I will love and I'm like I want to be invested so bad but the entire time I was like I don't care I just I'm not invested and it's not because of the movie it's not the movie's fault it's just it's me I know it's on me for whatever reason there's just a disconnect for me I never really like connected with the film and I I don't blame the movie at all it's really I'm trying to stress as much as possible I don't think it's the movie's fault I I tried to like make a list of like some things that like might have bothered me and I literally can't think of anything other than it was just maybe like just not connecting with me fully so I I wish I had more to say about it but I don't I think that this movie uh excels it's not exploitive it's not manipulative it's um you really get to like breathe with the characters and like live with the characters and it's really beautiful and it's human and I just I wish I loved it but I don't and that's on me (laughs) I mean just looking at Carson's face when you said that you you think it's similar to Portrait of a Lady on Fire in terms of quality. I know that that's going to be a good conversation to have in a couple of minutes. No, but, it's n- not in terms of quality. No, no, no. How oh, I feel oh. about it. How oh, I feel okay, about okay. it. Oh, okay. I was yeah, confused no, no, for a second. No, 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 no. I was like, well. No, no. I know that the content is similar. That's what I was trying to say. I know the content is similar, but like I'm talking about the hype that was behind it and like how oh, okay. I love it and like that conversation and how I just with both films like I felt the same like amount of hype and like ready to like go into it and love it and then when I watched the movie it was just like a disconnect for me and I couldn't connect fully and that's on me not the movies both of the movies I can recognize they're great and they're beautiful but for me they just I didn't connect with them fully so yeah okay because the thing is I actually well just again we're not don't want to spend the whole segment just comparing both but I found that um Again, there were a lot of similarities between them, apart from just being kind of like a like a lesbian romance. Like I feel like the setting, a lot of certain like plot points were kind of similar. And I just felt that, um, just to preface it, I really loved Portrait of a Lady on Fire and I felt it actually had like an artistic touch to it. Um, but this one, I do actually feel that disconnect that you were mentioning before, although I would say that that, that is on the movie because I feel that it, I felt disconnected as well, quite disconnected throughout the entirety of the film. And again, I was actually not able to catch this one at TIFF, but there was a lot of hype behind it, as you were saying. But by the time it, it rolled around and its theatrical release rolled around and I was sent the screener, I was like, oh, like now I need, like I need to watch this because it's a big release. But um, I was I was trying to go in and like find the good in it. And there were yeah, there were good aspects. I gave it a, a slightly positive review as well, but it just it did not connect with me at all. I found it very bland i feel like everything from like the color palette um to the overall direction apart from like the final scene i I like the final scene a lot i'll give it that like the final maybe i'd say the final act i'd say i really like that part as well but overall i just felt it to be kind of bland and for a romantic movie i i found it to be quite cold actually um which really surprised me and but i do know that um carson here he i don't think he's actually seen the film but he has seen Francis Lee's past effort, God's Own Country. So I just want to hear Carson, like, what are you thinking about? Because I know this film came in with like portrait level hype and like lots of people predicting even best picture nominations. And then we're here uh, November 22nd day of recording and the hype has mostly fizzled out. It's died. Like, it's so sad. Um, I'm not going to turn this, you know, 
a couple of points. I've not seen the film, so everything I say on my opinion is speculatory. Um, also, I'm going to avoid turning this into a Portrait of Lady on Fire podcast, but you are both <laughs> just wrong in your opinions. Um, it's fine, though. Um Omnite, I think it's almost tragic. I still have hope that I'm going to like it, despite a lot of people, I really value their opinions, um, saying it's not good. I'm a big Francis Lee fan in general. I mean, his feature uh, debut, God's Own Country, was really poetically beautiful. I really, really love that film. It really went under the radar. Uh, we live in this time where there are so many really exciting brand new directors. And I think he is someone who kind of went under the radar. He didn't get that big A24 love where everyone just, you know, loves and oh, everyone's talking about him. Um, so it's so disappointing to see that Ammonite is not getting that reception. So many people calling it cold and lackluster when his first feature, which is seemingly decently similar, um, worked so well. I think it's going to be really interesting to see the trajectory of his career after this film, because ultimately I think Ammonite is going to be one of the defining factors of his filmography. Either this is where he finds his limits and maybe, you know, it's for a variety of reasons, possibly why this film is not connecting. I haven't seen it, so it's a little hard to say, but it could be that it's a period piece. It could be that he's trying to capture the drama of a lesbian romance, which he can't relate to nearly as much. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that could be leading to this. He's trying to live up to the hype of God's own country or only country. I forget the name of it. Um, maybe, he, you know, he's working with bigger studios, have more eyes on him. So ultimately, this film, it's going to be interesting to see from here where he goes. Either this film is going to be the start of a domino line of just like going downhill and he can't recover and he can't find the magic of his first feature, or this is where he learns his limitations and he can grow and he can once again, like start working back up to that point. Um, I'm still really interested in him as a voice. I think he's a very unique voice, uh, tends to be. All my interactions with him has been have been very, very pleasant. Um, so I wish the best for him. You know, I really love his first feature. Um, hoping I'm just a rare case and I love Ammonite, but I'm starting to get a little bit doubtful. Yeah, so I'm in the rare position of having seen this film one and a half times. Um, the first time I was watching it, my internet went down and then the screener I was given had timed out by the time it got back in. Uh, but luckily this was during London Film Festival, so I could go to a physical screening. And I have to say, um, even though there's lots of valid criticism about Francis Lee initially, like, you know, freaking out about the fact that his film was going to have to go to VOD because of the current climate. When you see it on a big screen, it has clearly been made with the cinema in mind. I mean, the sound design on this thing is just some of the most awe-inspiring of the year, I have to say. Um, but again, it does suffer from these Portrait of a Lady on Fire comparisons that are not the film's fault. It was clearly in production whilst that film was premiering at Cannes. The similarities are clearly superficial. And yet the entire time you're watching it, that film and what it does well is stuck in the back of my head. And it doesn't help the fact that Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan have absolutely zero chemistry on screen. Um, there are some very small moments in their relationship that are handled really well. There's like this, there's this one scene that really sticks out and it's just a, like a little brief interlude of Kate Winslet reading like a, a rude poem. And it's just the, the little touches like that here and there, but mostly it's just, it, it, I don't want to use the word cold, but that it is, it's, it's completely cold. This relationship 
isn't properly developed and yeah it's I, I can understand exactly why the hype just completely flamed out when people saw it because this is very much a sophomore slump I really, as you said, I feel like it does suffer from Portrait of a Lady on Fire comparisons because, okay, maybe if this one had come out before that, um, it would have been viewed differently because I feel part of what Portrait did was like, it was able to take maybe like a, a romance film and make it more than just like a romance film. And like, again, like I was saying before, like it has, it honestly, it was one of the best films of, well, last year, this year, um, because I, I know it released in different times in different places, but I just, I really appreciated just the artisan touch it had and like how, again, like how fiery the emotions were and the chemistry between the leads. And I just, I liked it a lot more than this one. And like, as we know that ending the final shot, um, that's an all timer for me. Um, and then I feel this one, honestly, again, it may just have been because it came after Portrait but honestly, I would say that over, and again, this may be controversial, but over Hillbilly Elegy, I found this to be, and I don't know if it's because of the period uh, setting or, or again, putting the actors or like, just it kind of seemed like a carbon, or not a carbon copy, but it just seemed like just following that, um, that, well, again, a couple of years back, like LGBTQ romance films, like weren't really considered prestige players. They were still very much kind of like under the radar, but I feel like in recent years, again, the award conversation has started for them and, I feel that like, it just felt as if it was playing for that slot. And I would, again, what I was saying before was that this might come off as controversial, but during the viewing of the film, I found it to be the most awards baby film I've seen yet over Hillbilly Elegy. It just, it felt, cause at least Hillbilly Elegy, the emotions, even though they were contrived and like manipulated, they were at least there, but I just did not feel really any emotion um, coming out from this film. I feel like the performances in Hillbilly Elegy like makes it like more awards baity like than this film itself because the performances here are like pretty understated to say the least and don't feel like they're like completely like contrived for like awards nominations. It I I, I really enjoy the performances here over Hillbilly Elegies. Um, but I wanted to mention that I think that this film will, lacks a lot of the tension that was in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I think that's false to its detriment too, um, because like throughout a lot of the movie, I was like, I wasn't like ever like on the edge of my seat or just kind of like when I watched uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, like every time, like they would like touch just like a little bit, it would like, it would like spark some like emotions and like it would it really helped the film a lot that there was like a lot of tension built around the relationship and like here this just I don't, I'm not sure what it was that was like the disconnect that like didn't make me feel that way but it was it was there and it, I felt like it needed that. Yeah the trajectory of the relationship is hard to buy into when I say it's I'm not sure if it's a fault with the performances or just a fault with the writing that these two people just don't seem to have the chemistry that's needed to really sustain a romantic narrative, even if it does, you know, subvert expectations somewhat later on. I'm trying to speak as vaguely as possible so Carson can still enjoy this when he sees it. But yeah, it's, it, I don't know, it doesn't feel fully fleshed out in the, in the way that it should be. And it did feel like I was being kept at a remove. I'll pose the question, do you guys think that just off watching it, that that's more of the issue with the performances or the screenplay? Like if you had to pick one, do you think it's the screenplay affecting the performances more or the performances affecting the screenplay? I think the screenplay. I think that 
the performances. I, I disagree. I think that Cerise and uh, Kate do have really good chemistry. Um, I think I it's hard to like put your finger on it because it could very well be both of them. But I don't know. It, it, I, I need a second watch to like fully be able to wrap my head around like why this film feels like so cold and like just not connecting with uh, any of us really. Yeah, and as I say, uh, the first time I was watching it just at home on a screen and before my internet just completely crapped out, that was the time when I felt distant from it. I do feel it benefits from a big screen viewing, but at the same time, I cannot possibly recommend anybody go to see this on the big screen just because it's still fairly mediocre and also because there's this pandemic going on. So please just wait and watch it on digital if you want to see it. The film overall, I'd say pretty mediocre, but it might have been better in a theatrical experience because, again, I only viewed it on indie TV. And again, we all know indie TV. It's been it's been a topic on Twitter for, for weeks now. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that it's not necessarily the best um, screener service, but I did um, I, like when he mentioned the sound mixing in the theater, like I didn't notice that I have like surround sound and I didn't no really notice that at all. Um, who knows what what audio channels they used for that. Um, so I do feel that like that may have also um, ruined the experience a bit, but I still feel that um, just to go back to Carson's question about performances or screenplay, same with Hannah, I'm not quite sure what it was and it would take a second viewing, but overall actually, again, not to shit on the person who doesn't wanna be shot on, but I feel that, again, just looking at it um, as, I, I forgot who it was who said, I think it was Hannah who said it as well, that, um, what Ammonite, like the biggest difference between Ammonite and Portrait was that Portrait had that tension. And I do feel that that comes from the direction. Um, honestly, again, I was, when I went into Portrait a while back, I was actually expecting it to be like what I found Ammonite to be, where it was like, okay, it was getting some hype because um, of representation, which is like good, but it also needs like a, like a great film. And then I was just like, um, I actually just watched it on Hulu, I believe when it came out on Hulu. Um, and what just like kind of captivated me was just the way it was directed and the way it was shot um, more than the actual story. I mean, again, the story was great. The performances were great, but it was the direction that truly captivated me. And again, the direction here is fine. But again, um, as you know, like I prefer ambition to just like being complacent. So I feel that um, the direction was good here, but I feel that especially again, coming off of portrait um, less than actually, I believe, six, eight months ago, um, you could tell that there was definitely a little bit of a dip in quality. So about its awards chances, what do you guys think about this? Because I know before the hype, it was getting quite a lot of buzz for pretty much every single category, the majority of categories. And then now um, I still see some potential in some areas, but I'm not really sure myself. The thing is, I don't think it was even intended to be like this big awards film uh, because like it was initially supposed to premiere at Cannes back in May. And I think that if it did premiere then as intended, you know, before people were even starting to consider contenders, you know, it may have been assessed on its own terms and the critical reaction may have been different. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I would still react to the same way, but I do feel that because of its prime positioning within awards season and the fact that it was one of the few like big buzzy titles that you know premiered at Toronto, I do feel it's had this weight put on it, uh, this expectation put on it that you know I don't think was supposed to be there in the beginning. I mean, 
it's from the director of God's Own Country. I mean, we're not expecting him to make this big leap to prestige, you know, straightforward awards film straight away. It's certainly far artier than that. Um, but I, again, and I think it's also too stacked a year for Kate Winslet to really get a look in, um, because I think she is very good here. That Again, the, the problem is just her character is written to have, you know, this sort of, this chemistry with a character that doesn't really appear to the viewer. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't see it getting anything. I'm not 100% sure. As of now, I think I need a second viewing for sure. And like when um, the film is like accessible to like everyone um, to really see like how much hype is gonna be behind it. Cause I, the parts of film Twitter that I've seen like with people seeing it like beforehand, like there's people who really, really, really love it. So. I don't know. I think that there's a good chance that Sri and Kate will get uh, nominated. Uh, but other than that, I it, it'll, it'll probably get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, it'll probably get a Best Picture nomination. Wow, that's that's pretty bold. Because I mean, to be honest, I did have it. Because um, again, as Alistair was saying, when it had its can or when it was like, okay, this is getting selected to can, I'm like, okay, this is something to watch for sure. Um, and definitely has the potential. And I feel just the general consensus was that people thought that Portrait of a Lady on Fire was snubbed. And I'd say this was kind of like the, the 2020s Portrait of a Lady on Fire in most people's eyes. And I feel that that may have also um, ruined a little bit ex of its expectations, but I actually had it in my best picture nomination prediction list. Um, I believe in the sixth or seventh slot, um, pretty much up until its TIFF premiere where it started getting middling reactions. And frankly, like I actually wrote a couple of articles um, for Awards Watch as well, where I had them still um, in the mix for, for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, but it's a stacked year. I honestly don't know. I feel, um, I, I feel like Actress is pretty much already solidified. Supporting Actress, I think Ronan could potentially slide in, but that they're gonna need a really, really big push behind it. Um, and I don't know if they can do that. I still feel that best um, picture, I mean, I've seen it pretty much drop from most best picture lists since its um, theatrical release. So I'm surprised that you still think it could, but I mean, is there another, just going back to kind of like how studios market things, is there another uh, film that Neon is pushing for awards apart from this? Cause I know that New Order, they had New Order and then obviously Mexico ended up choosing, um, I believe I'm no longer here. So that pretty much died down. So I feel, it's, apart from other international feature contenders, I think this is pretty much the only English language feature that they had as a major awards player. Is that correct? Or... They have the killing of two lovers. I don't know how well that's going to do, but they have it. Oh yeah, um, I'm seeing that one soon, but I mean, from the trailer, uh, it seems like it's much artsier than what the Academy normally goes to. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for it, but I do not think that that will get much buzz. Um, I agree overall with you, Diego, as far as its awards chances. I don't know which one's better for the film because I haven't seen it. So I'll say it either seems dead in the water or it seems like it's looking more and more like a fossil, its chances to get best picture. I don't know which one you want to go with. Um, <laughs> but I do think Alistair brings up a really valuable point for this entire award season is the fact that all these major contenders, at least a lot of them, were not originally scheduled to be like these major contenders coming out at this time period. 
Judas and the Black Messiah was going to be what a July or August release. Promising Young Woman was what, like April. A lot of these films are being pushed to right now and they're getting these pushes and attention that they would never get normally. So I think that's a really valuable point, even past Ammonite, just to keep in mind with these films, is that we're seeing these pictures that would not get this attention and, and all like basically automatically are pretty unique in this award season. Um, and the awards climate. So, I mean, if there's ever going to be a surprise, this is going to be the year for it. The only reason why I do think that it has a good chance at a Best Picture nomination is because it is the LGBT, like the big LGBT film this year. And also with Portrait of Lady on Fire being snubbed last year, I feel like it's gonna, I feel like it has a good chance of increasing uh, Ammonite's chances of getting in. I mean, I kind of do see that because I feel like it is, like basically portrait of a lady on fire, but like made academy friendly. As I was kind of saying before, like it it does have those baity aspects to it. Um, regardless of like whether or not how baity you think it is, it does definitely have those. It's much more awards friendly, I'd say, than portrait of a lady on fire. So you could have a point there, but again, I feel like we do kind of have to see because like I feel like either the academy will embrace kind of like all these like new, um not films that like don't normally contend for awards as Carson was saying or that they will either just like backfire and just go like with Trial of Chicago 7, um, Ammonite and who knows potentially Hillbilly Elegy as well so I feel like that um, I'm not quite sure whether that's going to work for the Academy or whether that's going to backfire and they're just going to go want to go right back to where they were before because I do know that in the past couple of years there's definitely been more diversity and younger voices selected to the voting committee. So I feel like, honestly, I do feel like those more um, diverse contenders are definitely gonna have boosted chances, especially now that, um, cause I know at the beginning of the year we had West Side Story, we had French Dispatch. Um, even June people were saying like, who knows, maybe that could be like a Lord of the Rings style um, nomination. But nowadays we pretty much just have those kind of like um, these exciting fresh new indie films um, and then the occasional like major awards player. So yeah, I, I really don't know um, which way it could quite go right now. Do you guys who've seen it, is there like a social commentary in the film? You don't need to get into like specifics, but I know the Academy likes films that feel important, even if they're not really saying anything of much value. Is there like that aspect to the film or is it more of just like a standard romance? Um, there's no social commentary to it. Um, I wouldn't say it's a standard romance because I'd say it does sort of subvert things um, as it goes along and becomes sort of a commentary on sort of the concept of sort of fixating on somebody and, you know, putting all of your emotions into one person, uh, so to speak. But there's no commentary on anything, you know, timely, uh, I would say, that would really boost its chances. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty much, it's, it's evergreen content. Yeah, I'd have to agree on that one. Again, I think Alistair just put it perfectly. Like, it does have, like, within his story, like, it might have some, but especially relating to today, it, I don't think it, there's any big connections that it has to, to what's going on today or that kind of make it relevant apart from just being more of a... Like, I feel, I feel like that's also what a lot of people didn't like was that it was, like, a period piece stuck in a period piece and that nowadays we've kind of come to expect, like, films like this normally tend to have some sort of um, relevant aspect to them, especially like in today's world. And this one was pretty much stuck in its period setting, which is not a bad thing, but as you were saying, it doesn't, um, I wouldn't say it falls into that category of like having that timely social commentary that the Academy loves. Finally, let's talk about Uncle Frank. 
left. I never knew why Daddy Mac was so mean to Uncle Frank. He was the kind of person I wanted to be. Smart and funny and considerate. You're going to be the person you decide to be. You're going to be the person everyone else tells you are. You get to choose. Can I come visit you sometime? Hi, I'm Frank Smith. Oh my god, Beth! Nice meeting you. Frank, don't tell me you were coming. That's because he doesn't know. He doesn't know? Oh, well, OK, this is going to be very exciting. How do you know Uncle Frank? He's my roommate. Wally and I lived together we have for 10 years. Never known anybody who was gay before. Of course you have. Claw director of church. Mr. Jiggerson? But he's so... What? Religious. Ah! Do you always know you were gay? Beth, I'd appreciate it if you didn't tell anyone in the family about me. So when you told me I should be what I want to be, that was just bullshit. Now that conversation changed my life. In 1973, Frank Bledsoe and his 18-year-old niece, Beth, take a road trip from Manhattan to Creekville, South Carolina, for the family patriarch's funeral. So Alistair, I know that this one actually premiered at Sundance all the way back in, oh, before we even knew that the pandemic existed. And after that, it kind of disappeared from the festival circuit only to reemerge at AFI Fest and then is now coming on to Amazon Prime Video, I think for the Thanksgiving release as well. So what did you think about this film? Um, I was pleasantly surprised by Uncle Frank. Um, it's, it's very much the typical Sundance movie in terms of how it gets this story about, you know, people facing prejudice and turns it into a straightforward crowd pleaser. Um, but at the same time, it, it does it very well. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a perfectly charming little film that, you know, I, I had very low expectations for and it, you know, it, it, no, it pleased me. It, it did its job as a crowd pleaser. What I will say, though, is I find it interesting that Amazon are not putting this forward for, like, Oscars or anything. They're classifying this as a TV movie, despite, you know, picking up the rights at Sundance. And so this will pretty much be that big Emmys play next year, which I find interesting, because I think that if they just kept this as a, you know, as an Oscar play, it you know, it, it might you know, it might pick up some nominations somewhere. It is a conventional but well-crafted award spate movie uh, that I think could find an audience. Yeah, I agree. I don't know where, like, the narrative of this, like, not being that good of a movie came into play. It almost feels like a hot take to be like, oh, I really enjoyed this film, and I'm almost disappointed that we don't have someone on here that really hates the movie. Um, I was pleasantly charmed by this. It's nothing revolutionary, sure, but I think the performances feel very genuine. And there is like a legitimate emotional arc here. There were some moments that truly felt haunting at times, um, especially in the third act. I think this is a very skillful film when it comes to controlling its emotion and how that resonates with the audience. Um, I really don't understand the hate this film is getting. Uh, not necessarily hate, but just more like 
eh, mediocre attention it's getting. Because um, I agree, I think this one's pretty talented. And I think it's so bizarre that Amazon's pushing this as a TV movie, um, considering to my knowledge, they're also pushing every film in the Small Axe series as a TV movie. So they're almost trying to have like a monopoly over the category and you have to think that not everything is going to get in. So it just feels so strange that they would throw this there because the Oscars are also just open this year. Um, I mean, I'm not an Amazon, so I'm not going to claim that I know everything that they're doing. Uh, it just feels very questionable for me because I think the quality is absolutely there in the film. Maybe not best of the year, but I really like this one. Uh, yeah, I also really, really uh, like this movie. And I, so I heard really great things. It's my friend Dwayne's favorite movie of the year so far. So, and he saw it at Sundance. So I had really big expectations going into the movie because he loved it so much and usually our taste when it aligns it aligns uh so I was very excited to watch the movie and I was and I saw some mixed stuff on Twitter so that kind of put me off a bit and I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I did enjoy it um yeah I think that uh whoever used the word charming I think that's the perfect like word for this movie it is like very charming but also there is a lot of stuff in the movie that absolutely like breaks your heart and it is like very haunting at times and I just I don't know there's there's something about this movie that is so like it like draws you in immediately and it kind of like it it just it it's so like hard to explain like how I feel about this movie because there is parts of the movie where I'm like it missed me like for emotions like completely but then there's other parts where I was like so invested and so just like like broken up about like stuff that was going on in it so I, there's parts of the movie that I'm kind of mixed on but for overall like I have so many movies that I think this way about where there's so much in the movie that I do like really love that I can like put the stuff that I didn't love like on the back burner like Far From Home and Chapter 2 like those are like movies that I would like put on this kind of level where it's like I have that uh, kind of juxtaposition with a lot of it but yeah there's so much like stuff that that's in it that is like just such high quality that with the stuff that does bother me I don't really think about it that much um, and with Paul Bettany I think that this is the best I've seen him ever and I've seen a lot of people like raving about Sophia Lillis and I'm, I'm, I don't think that I'm sold on Sophia Lillis like yet. And I don't think that I ever will be. I've seen her a lot of stuff and I'm just, I'm not a big fan of her. Everything that she <laughs> says and like everything, it seems like forced and weird. I don't know. She, I think a lot of the moments in the movie where I like, I had a disconnect, it was because of like her performance, um, which sucks. But yeah, for the most part, I really, really like this movie. Yeah, so actually, this was kind of a strange one for me to kind of go in because I kind of went in blind because I knew that I pretty much just knew that it had Paul Bettany in it and premiered at Sundance. So I'm like, okay, this is definitely one that's worth a watch. And this is before I don't know when Amazon acquired it. Um, but at least I wasn't aware of their acquisition um, when I had watched it. Um, and I was actually also surprised by the fact that, okay, so it has Paul Bettany. I didn't know Sophia Lillis was in it. And actually Steve Zahn and um, Judy Greer are also in it. And like, I just found it, I feel there's some other people as well that I was just taken aback by like that. I had no idea that they were in it. So it was kind of cool to um, see these familiar faces pop up that I really wasn't expecting. But overall, I would have to agree with everyone here. It was very charming. It was one of those like charming little films that um, it's not reaching for the stars. It's not trying to like be a major awards player. Um, it's not trying to change the world, but like for what it's trying to be, it's a great film. And I feel that Amazon has also carved a niche for them um, with maybe like this one night in Miami, I'd say the Glorias as well, where it's like they are able to create kind of these like 
charming films that like seem to appeal to everyone, but still have these like timely themes um, that do make you think and like that do impact you. And I would agree that there are some moments that again, be a little bit contrived here emotionally, but overall I feel that it was very um, sincere. And again, like the plot, a little bit conventional, but for what it was trying to explore and for what it actually achieved, it was very nice. Um, and I think this is this is a good Thanksgiving movie because I know we were talking about how Hillbilly Elegy, like that doesn't really fit the Thanksgiving vibe, but I feel like this is like kind of the perennial um, Thanksgiving film. Cause it's just, even though it has like some like stripes, some like um, moments of like where everyone's just feeling down at the end of the day, I found it to be very charming and a very kind of overall uplifting film that again, this was like, this came in the middle of like when I was watching some pretty dark and dreary films. So it was nice to have a film that um, was very uplifting and actually had an optimistic point of view overall. I mean, you say it's uplifting, but there is like a lot of darkness in this film. And I don't know, I mean, Alan Ball, the writer-director is obviously openly gay. And I feel like that uh, he may have incorporated like some element of self um, because like it is, to say it is this conventional crowd-pleasing movie as we have been doing, it does have one of the most like sort of realistic nuanced sort of portrayals of, you know, the horror of, you know, having to stay in a, stay in the closet and not being able to confide in, you know, your family and all these people who love you about your true self. And it never, you know, over-exaggerates that. I feel it, it's played like very believably and very realistically. And it manages to, you know, have that genuine emotional undercurrent within something that is just this straight down the middle, very familiar crowd pleaser. Um, so yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was so surprised to have responded to it so well, because just looking at it from the outside, I felt like I knew what the film was going to be, but it had a level of emotional honesty that I wasn't expecting. And yeah, I'm also pretty baffled as to why it has become so divisive among some critics because there's nothing specifically about it that I can understand what would, you know, generate uh, hatred. Um, maybe the final 10 minutes, which I do feel are a bit wish fulfillment uh, and not like a really realistic end to the story. But aside from that, no, I, I can't really understand where the divisive reactions have come from. I mean, the, regarding the divisive reactions, um, where are you guys seeing that? Because I mean, like, it has a pretty positive tomato meter score. Um, and on film Twitter, I really haven't seen a bad review. Uh, I found it to be pretty much like that. Everyone was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's not like, wow, but it's like still really good and like a charming film. Like I, I personally haven't seen much um, divisiveness around it. So I was kind of shocked to hear that as well. I'm seeing a bunch of hate on film Twitter. Paul Price, uh, Paul uh, gave it half a star on Letterboxd. So. Oh wow, for real? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I, that. I was gonna say I see. I've seen less hate and more like it's just like eh, like mediocre. And I think that is pretty divisive in it of itself because I've seen like the extreme of like with my friend Dwayne, um, for example, who like it's his favorite movie of the year. He loved it so much. And then like a lot of people who are also like it's just meh. I'm gonna like forget it tomorrow. Um, but, and I've also seen a few, few people be like, oh, I just don't like it, which is so weird because it feels like one of those movies that should have been like 
kind of like a knives out last year where it's like it's Thanksgiving everyone should have loved it and you know we should all be celebrating it but it's just kind of I feel like it's going to fly under a lot of people's radars in a lot of way, uh, ways when it does release on Amazon um, and I think that's Amazon's fault the, really because Amazon sucks at marketing uh, but yeah. Yeah, it's so strange also because I think this film to a fault tries to please audiences. Um, I know it's already been mentioned, but I think the ending is what like holds me back from saying this is a real masterpiece just because it wraps up so cleanly and so happily. Um, this is a film that's clearly meant to please audiences. So the fact that people are coming away like negative, I think is it's a strange reaction. Um, maybe they're just upset that it ends in such a clean matter. But I mean, also, as mentioned before, there is quite a lot of darkness and emotional weight within the film. So I don't really understand it. Um, but I think the word that really captured it that Alistair mentioned is just genuine. Speaking from my experience growing up gay, I mean, I, this film puts into words and puts into film so eloquently and so genuinely the struggle it is to come out to family. It seems like it should be so simple, but especially when it comes to like small microaggressions that families have and stuff, it really is a complex and hard and painful and scary experience. And I think this film not necessarily, again, reinvents the wheel, but I think it does it in a very genuine matter that feels really haunting um, and really almost like triggering to a point in some ways where there was just so much of like my personal experience shown on screen. So I think also that might just be a thing if you don't relate in some way to that experience, you wouldn't have that connection. You wouldn't have that personal relationship to the material. Maybe that's something. Um, but I know that's one thing I really appreciated within the film. I think a lot of that is because the performance by Paul Bettany, he is fantastic in this movie. I, I think that maybe what's coming to my mind, like you guys were talking about how like it wraps up like so cleanly. I think a lot of people were going into it, maybe like expecting more like, you know, grittiness and like just not to be like kind of wrapped up in a bow at the end. And I think um, the film that's coming to my mind, a lot of people have turned on Love, Simon because of that. So maybe that's the same thing here, even though they're completely different movies, they're very, very different. But um, I've seen a lot of people uh, criticize Love, Simon for the same thing, so. I mean, all this is new to me. Like, I had no idea that people were turning on Love, Simon as well now, but. You haven't seen um, like people like actually I, like angry with Love, Simon on Twitter? No, 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 I, I mean, so I thought, weird. I mean, so back, weird. <laughs> back when it was released, like I wasn't really like on active on Twitter and I found it, again, I found it to be kind of like this like charming, um, well done and like pretty much everyone I knew liked it a lot. I feel like it had some pretty good um, reviews as well. So like. Yeah, people really... loved it when it first released. Carson, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh no, like, I definitely know. To be fair, released, I don't like everyone. I don't like raved. the movie, but yeah, no, everyone loved the film, and then everyone was like, "This teen LGBT movie wraps up like positive, like in a clean, positive matter." Fuck this movie, and I don't yeah. get it. But yeah, no, everyone turned on that film. It's very strange. It's very strange. <laughs> Wow. Because at least yeah, this is like I... a drama you could expect, like, oh, it's, you know, it's haunting in ways. Love, Simon's like just an innocent teen movie. That's not supposed to be like this dark and like horrible thing. going for too. It's like the trailers didn't like miss like, yeah. misadvertise the movie in a way because it like, it literally like puts it out like on a plate for you and says like, hey, we're a generic like teen romance movie, but it like, just happens to be LGBTQ. Like, what? <laughs> it would be such a jarring movie if it had a depressing ending. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that, 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 that's really perplexing to me. But I guess film Twitter is going to film Twitter. 
anyway, so I know we had mentioned this a little bit before, but now I want to get into it. So like, I know Hannah mentioned that Amazon isn't probably going to do a good job marketing this um, and that they're actually pushing it for a TV movie Emmy rather than any like actual narrative film awards, which I find perplexing as well. So again, just to give my thoughts, especially on the marketing, I feel that Amazon doesn't tend to be the best apart from like the boys and like the hunt, like hunters and like big budget shows every once in a while. I feel that Amazon really lacks in its marketing. Like I was actually talking to a couple of um, critic friends as well. Like they don't know where to get stills from small acts. Like they really haven't seen, like I personally haven't seen much buzz from, from small acts apart from the festival run and then IMDb, which is like owned by Amazon and then just like film Twitter reactions. But I haven't seen any ads for small acts. I haven't seen um, any like major trades like covering it again. Cause I feel like they also made up, might've made the mistake of um, putting it back in festivals and that's when everyone covered it. And then now there's really nothing that most people want to cover but I just find it kind of shocking how such a big series like that um, gets so mismarketed by Amazon. And it seems like as if um, it's gonna happen here as well. Cause I know that um, the glorious, I feel like that could have also been marketed pretty widely that wasn't marketed either um Borat 2 I'd say that one was marketed well but I feel like this is another one that's going to go under the radar and again I'm perplexed by the decision to put it into the tv movie category so I want to hear your guys' thought on just like the whole marketing thing and the award strategies and what do you guys think um this film will turn out with in terms of, of awards so just in terms of the marketing, I mean, I can't speak to how Small Axe is being marketed because here in the UK, it's airing on the BBC and not on Amazon. But yeah, that is a case of Amazon very badly marketing most of their films and shows. Um, if you say Borat was an exception, it seems like they've pretty much already got the One Night in Miami marketing campaign at full steam even though they've got multiple films uh releasing on their platform before then that they haven't even done the bare minimum for in terms of awards um i would be intrigued to see if this was submitted as a film how it would have done with the oscar because as we know alan ball is a former winner for writing the screenplay for american beauty i guess they thought emmy was a safer bet because he's now more known for creating six feet under and true blood but I still think that because of, you know, the, the charming ways, it both ticks all the boxes you expect from a crowd pleaser of this sort, but also embeds some genuine emotional honesty. I think that this could have probably have cracked the screenplay ca category this year. Um, even though that is fairly stacked, I think that this would have had a chance if they'd put more weight behind it. I agree. I think it could have been kind of like a green book in a way, if uh, Amazon um, pushed it in the Oscars. Uh, I I would, would love to see Paul Bendy get nominated for this, uh, but he won't, obviously, because they're not going to put it in with the Oscars. But even if they did, I would have loved to see him get nominated, even though he definitely wouldn't have, uh, because I think he's just that good here. Um, uh, but to be fair with the Borat 2 marketing, I think that that was Sasha Baron Cohen more than Amazon. Uh, I don't think that Amazon uh, really gave it uh, great marketing either. Uh, I just, I don't think that Amazon knows how to like campaign for films. <laughs> so maybe they're like, let's just put it in Emmys because I think that they did try with uh, Suspiria because uh, Suspiria had a pretty 
big marketing campaign like I remember seeing trailers for that like all the time um but that didn't get them anything sadly so I don't know I I hope it does well at the Emmys though it's actually quite shocking to look at Amazon, like Amazon's filmography and see what films actually are Amazon originals. Cause you see this common theme of like really good films. Everyone loves and everyone wants to get nominated and then just misses a uh, honey boy just comes to like top of my head. Like I agree. They just, I find it so strange because every other streaming service has found a way to do this and Amazon releases films in theaters beforehand. So you think it would be even easier, but they just for the life of them cannot put together a campaign which I don't, I don't understand why, but yeah, I, I agree. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's a weird year. I don't know if uncle Frank would have gotten anyway. I would, I think it has better chances at the Oscars of being honest. Um, I mean, we will see though. I do want to say though, that people forget that Amazon were pretty much the first streaming service to actually win an Oscar because they had Manchester by the sea. And it's just strange how they went straight out the gate with a multiple Oscar winner and then have just completely forgotten how to put a campaign on after that. I mean, you can say the same thing for A24. They had Moonlight and that was like underdog, best picture, upset La La Land. Holy shit, A24 can build a campaign. And then they just died in the Oscar race. Like, I don't, it's so curious how these studios can start off so strong. And I feel like Neon's going to follow a very similar trajectory where it has a lot of hype. It's getting these nominations, even a couple of wins. Let's say they got the win for Parasite and then they're just going to die in the conversation. It makes no logical sense, but it's a trend that keeps coming up. Well, I mean, re just regarding Neon, like I do agree that like these, um, these kind of like not necessarily major studios. Um, well, Netflix just has all that money behind it. So they're able to keep up. But I do agree that like most of these major studios have like one hit and they kind of fall off in terms of awards. And again, not to kind of delve into like studios awards tragedies, but Neon, apparently they took all that Parasite money and I believe they, they just, they're kind of like all out, just like how Netflix went all out on TIFF. Um, they kind of just went all out on Sundance. Um, and again, these are films that like I really loved. I loved how they bold they were, like She Dies Tomorrow and Possessor. And I just loved how... And again, New Order as well. Like I just loved how bold they were and how inventive they were. But at the end of the day, I was a bit shocked because none of those are awards players. And now, for instance, like Neon, like Amazon at least has one night in Miami, which is just kind of exactly what the Academy wants. And I think it's perfect for the time. So I feel like that's good. But like for Neon, like as we talked about earlier, uh, Ammonite kind of faltering um, and they really don't have much left. Um, and yeah, I feel like, I don't know what it is. And I know A24 has Minari, but I've noticed people um, starting to kind of question how well they're actually going to do in the come Oscar night. Um, so yeah, I do feel that this is maybe just, um, I honestly don't know. Like, I feel like it's just these studios kind of like get one hit and then they might not know exactly what's the best way to proceed because it's like such a new phenomenon for them. But I'm not quite sure as to how the TV movie selection was done. See, I'm actually quite worried about One Night in Miami. Uh, I not, you know, this is not a podcast for that. We'll talk about it down the line. But that is a film that it, its screenplay is very, very, you know, the elements of it being originally a play is there, which is something the Oscars don't always like. I think that is a film for some people will really, really work. I'm one of those people. I love that film. I think it's going to alienate a lot of the audience with its screenplay and it's just overall direction. So I could see that one like missing. I would say Uncle Frank would be a much safer play for Oscars than One Night in Miami. So yeah, personally, um, 
I do feel that, um, just to wrap this up, I feel like One Night in Miami's um, timely themes, that is something that um, the Academy will love, especially with all the protests going on in the past couple of months. And But it's still kind of safe, so I say that that's definitely in the Academy's wheelhouse. But Uncle Frank, just in general, I feel like it could have had potential. Um, and then I guess we'll just have to see how it does on its Thanksgiving release and in its Emmys campaign. But anyway, so that kind of concludes um, the film discussion portion of this roundtable. But before just concluding the entire roundtable, there's a pertinent news item that I'd like to talk about with you guys that has been, I believe it was sometime last week where it was kind of leaked and then officially announced. But Wonder Woman 84, which was largely considered to be like the next big film that was gonna release in cinemas and kind of revitalize the industry um, has moved to HBO Max and it's still playing in theaters but it's going to be releasing on HBO Max day and day um, on December 25th as well, I think, which was its theatrical release. So what do you guys think about that move? Like, do you agree with it? Um, do you think kind of signals the death of um, theaters for a while? Or like, do you think there's still hope? Or I just want to hear what you guys think about that. I, I don't think that this, I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, it's the death of theaters. And I'm like, there's so many movies coming out in 2021. And this certainly wasn't going to be the biggest movie of 2020. So it's like, let's all calm down a little bit. I think that Wonder Woman has been delayed a lot more than uh, most COVID movies. Like even before COVID, Wonder Woman was delayed twice. So I think that it's just time for this movie to come out. And I think that this is probably the best bet to do uh, on HBO Max. And also there is a theater option. So it's not just completely like alienating people who do want to go to the theater and can go to the theater. Um, so yeah, I think this is a good decision. Uh, and plus 2021 is stacked anyway. And it, it certainly wasn't going to make, you know, a good amount of money in, in just theaters in 2020. So. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, I think a lot of people just are like really stupid when it comes to this conversation in multiple ways. Um, number one, a lot of people just say delay the film. That means that Warner Brothers has to delay their entire lineup, an entire schedule, change the marketing, spend more money on marketing for all their films in their lineup. Like it's not just easy to continue to push your entire schedule back and back. Eventually you have to release your films. You have to get in on the hype. Um, I think Tenet even, you saw that film push back a couple times over the summer. And it, I think it definitely lost hype from, you know, it's like August release date to its September release date or whatever. Um, you can't just continue to push back your film. So like where it's not ideal, I don't think anyone was like, oh, I want this to be on HBO Max originally. It is the time we're living in. It's not ideal to be in a global pandemic. Um, but also people saying this is the death of theaters. It's not. There's no evidence to prove that this is the death of theaters. People are so dramatic. Oh my God, Trolls World Tour. You know, it was the same thing. Trolls World Tour killed theaters for like a week on film Twitter. It's not that serious. Those films are still, those blockbusters still make so much money at the theaters. When it's a viable option to return, they will go back to theaters. And ultimately, if it's not a safe option right now, we are in a pandemic, why force that? I don't get people saying, oh, this is horrible. Let's just force it to go out in theaters. It doesn't make money. We've seen with Tenet, it's not necessarily the most successful way to make these big blockbuster budgets back. But also, you're in a fucking pandemic. Why would you have anyone die for Wonder Woman 1984 for the sake of movie theaters? I don't get it. Um, I think people just are really not thinking a lot of the time when they speak about these issues. Um, so I agree. I think this is a really solid uh, solution. Yeah, I agree that uh, having in cinemas and on streaming at the same time is the best way to approach this, you know, considering we're in a pandemic. The only problem is 
that's only the option in America. Over here, it's only coming to cinemas. There's no VOD option. HBO Max doesn't exist as a streaming service here yet. So for international, I mean, pretty much all of Europe, which is still pretty much being ravaged by this pandemic, we're not getting a VOD option. We have to risk our lives. And Trolls World Tart has already proved that audiences around the world can happily, you know, put down some money to watch something on VOD and then still go and watch that film in a cinema when it's released in a cinema. I don't understand why that business model, which has proved to have worked at least modestly, has just been thrown by the wayside already um, for a film that is being made available on VOD internationally, but not here. It, it, it's baffling because it, it seems like the perfect solution and the best way to approach films, you know, going forward for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and honestly, like with the entire HBO Max thing, that was honestly, like I have it and it's, I'd say the best streaming service I have currently, but it's getting no buzz. Um, Like it's not on Roku, it's barely on Fire TV. So I feel that this is also a move to kind of revitalize that. I feel like, I think HBO Max actually just closed the deal with Amazon and they're getting really close to closing a deal with Roku. Um. So I feel like that actually is a smart move because it's a film that, again, they can kind of sacrifice to get more subscribers on HBO Max and, again, provide a safe option while still, like, if someone wants to go to theaters, which is not the ideal thing, but if someone wants to go, they can go, um, then that provides them that option as well. But I'm surprised that, do you think it's going to, like, move to maybe, I think, like, isn't, like, HBO's kind of, like, counterpart in Britain, Sky Media or something like that? Um, yeah, so there, some studios have been moving their things to Sky over here, but Wonder Woman has just not been part of that package at all. They've sort of avoided moving any ma- major blockbusters um, to, to Sky like that. Um, so yeah, as, as far as I know, it is still going to be in cinemas, but just a week earlier uh, over here, I think it's December 16th or December the 18th it's released here in cinemas. But again, that could change because apparently tomorrow they're announcing some new lockdown restrictions. So who knows? Maybe it will come on to VOD next month here as well. It all depends on whether the government declares cinemas are safe to open. I'll just piggyback off Diego very quickly. I think this is exactly what HBO Max needed. I agree. Actually, I think it is the number one streaming service in quality right now. It's movie selection is very strange. They have just random sequels and shit. But like, I think overall looking at the library and the new originals that it's getting, I think it's the best quality streaming service. Um, I think we've seen with Apple TV Plus, you know, that's been around longer than HBO Max. Both are getting a little bit old at this point, but their biggest issue is getting people just on the platform. People are so used to Netflix and Hulu and even the Criterion channel for Cinephiles, which HBO Max has a ton of those films. Um, the biggest issue is just getting people on the platform. So if you have a big film like this to get people to use that month subscription, they're going to see everything on there. I think this is exactly what this streaming service needs to boost up and be a serious player. I think if this goes really well, Apple TV Plus, I know there was talks that they might want uh, No Time to Die or whatever. I could see them picking up a big blockbuster very shortly if this goes really well. Um, you need people to get your eyes on the product to get them invested because I think both streaming services are incredible with quality right now. Um, so I agree. And I hope this does really well for HBO Max because I think they're making incredible originals. Um, I think they have a good library. I think they're really, really solid. 
So anyways, to round out the Global Film Podcast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations, like not necessarily new releases, but things we personally watched that from the past that we'd like to recommend on here. So Carson, would you like to go first? Sure, I'm going to cheat and do two because I have a movie and a mini or and a series, not a mini series. I was yelled at about calling it a mini series. Um, if you're going to get HBO Max to go see Wonder Woman. Uh, watch We Are Who We Are. It's on there. It's a, a series by Luca Guadagnino. It is fucking beautiful. It is so stunning. I have a review on Clapper. I have an article coming out in December breaking down the thematic weight of it. Not quite as good as Call Me By Your Name, I'll be completely honest. It's still beautiful, so complex. So many things are represented, so many like identities and complexities of the human condition and the human experience in the modern world. It is damn near a masterpiece. Check it out on HBO Max. For the movie, uh, Martin Eden is an Italian film that's been out on VOD for, I think, a little bit now. I just recently got sent a screener of it, so I watched it. Um, I have a review up online for it. A fantastic film breaking down the relationship between politics, love, career, and the arts and your hobbies, and how as a human you have to make sacrifices somewhere, you can't do everything. I found it to be a really haunting tale. It's slow, admittedly, uh, but it has one of the best visual styles of any film this year. Um, it's potentially going to be getting Oscar prospects, so we will see. I know it got nominated at the Gotham Awards. Um, so fingers crossed. I really like that film, though, and stunning lead performance. So I'm sorry for cheating, but those are my two recommendations. Hannah? Uh, yeah, I'm going to agree with the We Are Who We Are recommendation. I loved it so much. I think it has one of the best finales that I've ever seen. Uh, the last like 10 minutes of the series, like all together, is absolutely breathtaking. Watch it. It's so good. Um, but the thing that I've just been recommending recommending all year is Middleton Schwartz on Netflix. It's my favorite thing to come out this year. I cannot stress like how good it is and just how much fun you'll have watching it. Like I was having such a bad time in quarantine during the time that this came out and watching it. Like I've watched it, I think 19 times now, like all three episodes, uh, 19 times now, uh, because it just, it's an, it's an escape for sure. And it will just make you feel amazing every time they put it on and my first initial watch of it was like the most fun I've had watching something in like years I cannot stress it enough it's so good uh three episodes uh like an hour piece and yeah you'll just have the best time yeah I've actually started watching it and I think I believed I watched the first episode I knew it was just it was hilarious it was I haven't really seen anything like it before so it's definitely a refreshing watch and I'll have to check it out soon no, Hannah, and... that you got me to watch it based on everything that you post on Twitter. And then I showed my friends, like friend group of 10 of it online, and they all loved it and they showed it to others. <laughs> so you're making an impact here. Netflix I really know. should be paying you respect. <laughs> I, I saw nobody on Twitter talk about it. Literally nobody on Twitter talking about it. And I just knew about it because I was like, oh my God, the guy from Sonic, I love him. Uh, <laughs> and wait, did it work? Not from Space Force, Where... you chose Sonic, really? I mean, John Ralphio, like, that's just... Um, I only watch Space Force because of Sonic in general. So. <laughs> yeah, but wait, weren't you the one who, like, uh, kind of, like, led um, Ben Schwartz to discover what Letterboxd was? Was that you? Yeah, I, I got to- <laughs> I got to introduce Ben Schwartz to Letterboxd. I got to tell Ben Schwartz what Letterboxd was. That is like easily the highlight of my life. Um, <laughs> I just, I love him so much. But yeah, I basically like led film Twitter to like uh, watching this movie uh, and watching this movie, this uh, series. 
literally I had so many people for like weeks adding me being like hey I'm watching the of shorts right now <laughs> uh there's like no letterbox ratings on it like for like my friends on uh, uh when I first logged it and now like everyone that I like follow on letterbox has seen it which is just it makes me happy. <laughs> and so I guess you also had a lot to do with the box office success of Sonic. So that, that was pretty oh, yeah. much you. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> I am Benchworth's personal hype man. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Parson Rec, I love him. And I love his character in there as well. Um, so anyways, Alistair, so what have you seen recently that you'd like to recommend? Um, well, after a feel-good recommendation, I've got a feel-bad film for everybody to check out. Um, Collective, which is a Romanian documentary, which is Romania's entry for Best International Film at this year's Oscars. Um, and it's now available on VOD uh, in the US and the UK. It's a very good documentary. It's one of the best films about journalism I've ever seen. And I just urge everybody to just go into it knowing as little as possible only that it's very bleak and you will come out thinking that the world is completely fucked. Well, just to stay in line with that theme of bleakness, um, I watched my first uh, Michael Haneke film. I think it was a couple of, it was just pulling up my, my letterbox diary here. Uh, it was November 9th and I watched Funny Games, which I'd say it's kind of um, maybe not the best first film to watch of his, but I fell in love with it. Um, it was, I just loved how nihilistic it was. I know like, that was kind of the point. Um, and the friends I watched it with, they did not like it at all. They thought it was way too drawn out and nihilistic, but honestly, I loved it because of that. And I, I just loved how like the calm direction was like juxtaposed against like the atrocities of the film and that it was a really good like meta deconstru deconstruction of like the genre. And um, I don't know, I just, it's really something that I enjoyed a lot. And if you're kind of, if you kind of like those kind of like twisted films um, that just, uh, I don't know, just like with those long takes and it just kind of like transcended to me. And I don't know, just it's a really interesting film, especially if you haven't seen any of his, um, definitely check that one out. And by the way, I forgot to mention, but it's the American remake. I ended up going with the American one because apparently that is what he tends to prefer and what apparently was the original vision of the film. Um, but anyways, yeah, if you're, if you like that kind of like nihilism, um, then you're going to enjoy that one as well. So, well, that's it for this week's episode of Clappercastic Global Film Podcast. So where can we find everyone on social media? Carson? So you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar. Hannah? So I currently have a dead Twitter account for maybe like another week. Uh, but you can follow me there because I will get the account back uh, at Movies and Cats. But the one I'm using currently is Rejected Hannah. So follow either of them. <laughs> and Alistair? And yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Yes, It's Alistair. Good to know. Good to know. So you can find all of the latest releases of film and television reviewed at our sister site, www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social media profile on both Global Film Pod on Twitter, as well as Clapper at Facebook and Clapper LTD on Twitter as well. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. <laughs>